Gift Biz Unwrapped, episode 226. She said, I don't understand why you're so upset. And I'm like, well, I don't know anything more than I did when I got here. And she said, well, of course you don't. You already knew you could do this. Attention, gifters, bakers, crafters, and makers. Pursuing your dream can be fun. Whether you have an established business or are looking to start one now, you are in the right place. This is Gift Biz Unwrapped, helping you turn your skill into a flourishing business. Join us for an episode packed full of invaluable guidance, resources, and the support you need to grow your gift biz. Here is your host, gift biz gal, Sue Monheit. Hi there, it's Sue, and I'm so happy that you're joining me here today. I'm in the middle of a lot of travel right now. I was just in San Diego for a conference. For those of you who might be familiar, Pat Flynn had his very first conference, FlynnCon number one. So this was an investment in my own self-development. We talk podcasting, online courses, and overall business growth online. See, I practice what I preach. This was an investment in myself and my business so that I can show up better for you guys. Then I jumped over for a quick trip into Mexico, like a two-day quick trip, because it was a family birthday celebration that I kind of snuck in between two other trips. And now this week, I'm going to be headed out to Phoenix for a couple of days for the National Gift Basket Convention. I'm logging lots of air miles, which is really good because I always take specific, really intense projects, and I use that airtime to really focus because there's no phone, There's no email, and I can really just stay intent with no distractions. Most of the time, anyway. (laughs) I'm planning to do a meetup while I'm in Phoenix, so if you're in the area, I would love to meet you in person. For all the details, jump over to my Facebook group, Gift Biz Breeze. That's where I always announce if I'm going to be out of town, possibly in your town, and scheduling a meetup. So there you can see what towns, and then I give you all the specifics. So... If you're in Phoenix, let's see each other this week. Before we get into the show, I have a question for you. How'd your day go yesterday? Maybe a crazy question, I know. And yes, you heard me right. If you were to rate yesterday, how much did you get done? How far did you advance toward your goal? Or maybe in your mind you're saying, what goal? Many of you have told me you aren't sure whether what you're doing is the right thing for your business. You're confused that you may be focusing on the wrong things and wasting time and money. And you compare yourself to others and feel like you're just not keeping up. Sound familiar? Maybe you find that you're busy all day long, but when you finish up, you haven't accomplished much of anything at all. I've been there too. Until I started working with what I now call the power of purpose. I made a free video for you that explains how to boost your productivity and get results using the power of your purpose. Isn't it time to make all the effort that you put into your business and your life do for you what you've intended? Now, full disclosure, this video does lead into showing you my brand new Inspired Daily Planner. But listen, you don't need the Inspired Planner to get all the advantages out of the power of purpose that I show you in this video. So if you're interested in discovering a new way to work through your days so your time is intentional and your results are real, 
I encourage you to go over and watch this video. And you can find it at giftbizunwrapped.com forward slash planner. That's giftbizunwrapped.com forward slash planner. I'm really excited for you to hear from our guest today. Last week, I teased about the industry she's in because it's a Gift Biz Unwrapped first. Meg is a stationery designer. Well, she started that way and still is today, but today she's so much more than that, too. It's always interesting to see how the first vision that someone has for their business adjusts and morphs into something a little bit different as time goes on. One of the things about the guests I bring on the show is that even if they have a different product line than you do, they are all still makers. So you can always learn something from people outside of your specialized product niche. Sometimes even more because you can get so cocooned into your category and so single focused that sometimes you miss other opportunities, thoughts, creative things that you can bring to your product marketing of your business, etc., that you find from learning about someone in a totally different product space than you're in. I know you're going to find a ton of value in Meg's story and her advice. So without any further delay, let's move into my chat with Meg. Today, it is my pleasure to introduce you to Meg Sutton of Bell & Union. Meg is the boss lady and doodler behind Bell & Union, a company that sells letterpress printed cards, art prints, Southern-inspired wrappings, and handcrafted artisan goods brimming with vintage wit and wisdom that tote a little bit of a foodie twist, all 100% made in the USA. Meg started the business in 2012 after falling in love with letterpress while working in a boutique shop. Bell & Union launched their first brick-and-mortar store in San Antonio, Texas in July of 2018. The shop houses the working studio as well as offers creative workshops across a wide variety of subject matters. Meg values encouraging people to slow down and enjoy the sweet moments in life, gathered round a table filled with smiles and laughter. And when she's not doodling or coming up with Bell & Union's next great product, you can find her sipping chai tea, chasing her pup with her husband, and curling up with a good book. Oh my gosh, Meg, that life sounds fabulous. Welcome to the Gift Biz Unwrapped podcast. Thank you so much for having me. I'm thrilled that you're here with us, and as tradition has it on the show, I'd like to have you give us a little feel for who you are by describing yourself through a motivational candle. So if you were to help us envision what this candle looks like by color and quote, what would it be? So this is actually a really fun question because I'm attempting to work on a candle line right now. (laughs) Oh boy, and I'm all about candles, so that's great. (laughs) So it's definitely been forefront of my mind. I would definitely say my color would have to be white because I want it to go with anything, any decor, no matter what room of the house. Plus white to me is just clean and classic and definitely sophisticated too. But as far as what I think I'd want it to say, I've kind of fallen in love with this quote by Max Dupree, who was the head of Herman Miller, the office furniture brand. Such an amazing, iconic company. But he said, we cannot become what we want by remaining what we are. And I just find those words really powerful and inspiring right now for a lot of reasons. But I think a lot of small business boss ladies and entrepreneurs in general can really relate with that. Just knowing you've got to take that next step to really get where you want to go. 
Absolutely. And that's a little bit fear provoking and all, but it's exciting at the same time. You're moving into something different, kind of like a butterfly emerging from a cocoon or something, maybe. Yes, definitely. (laughs) Got it. Well, Meg, give us a little bit of your backstory. How did you get to where you are today? Sure. So I studied graphic design in college. So I've always kind of been in a design mindset, you could say. But like most designers, I wasn't necessarily thrilled with the idea, or maybe not most. (laughs) I personally was not thrilled with the idea of going super corporate. I love the ability to make things by hand and really have something tactile. Because unfortunately, with graphic design, so much of it lives in the digital world. And so it wasn't quite as fulfilling for me as an artist and ultimately a maker. But after graduating school, I didn't dive quite right in, I guess you could say. I did go work at an advertising agency for about a year, as expected. I hated every minute of it. It just wasn't a good fit for me. Again, wasn't making things and I didn't really feel like my voice was being heard. So on the side, I was doing wedding invitations, as I think most designers do at one point in their career. It's just kind of a rite of passage. And it got to the point where I was doing so much of that work that I essentially had two full-time jobs. So my advertising job was about an hour away from where I was living. I would have to be out of the house by seven and I wouldn't get home till probably at least seven or eight at night. And then I would start my other job with the invitations. And so after that first year, my husband put his foot down and said, nope, you got to pick one. I don't ever see you. You're buried. It's too much. Like pick one. Well, I can tell you that our (laughs) listeners, a lot of them are in that situation right now and can completely relate. And I would venture to say, don't have a husband who say pick one. (laughs) (laughs) It's a lot. I was running myself into the ground and that's just not sustainable as a human being or as a business either. And in the back of my mind, I had always had this idea of having my own line. So while I was in school, I worked at an adorable little boutique in Savannah, Georgia, And that was where I first discovered the art of letterpress. So we sold letterpress greeting cards. And it was amazing to me that there were people out there whose job was to design and print cards. And like, they that was their life. They made a living doing it. It was amazing. So I was fortunate enough to go to the National Stationery Show a couple times with my boss as a buyer. And I just felt like my eyes were open to this whole world that I didn't know existed. So while I'm working this advertising job and doing all these invitations, like in the back of my mind, it's like, okay, could I maybe work for myself? So I went back to the stationery show in 2011 just to walk it and see, okay, is this realistic? Can I do this? And I remember sitting on the staircase of the Javits, which is this huge staircase for anybody that hasn't been there. And I was crying and the woman that was with me was laughing because she said, I don't understand why you're so upset. And I'm like, well, I don't know anything more than I did when I got here. And she said, well, of course you don't. You already knew you could do this. To me, that was kind of this really big aha turning point. So I went home, quit my job at the ad agency, and I spent the next year working on our first collection. So I went back to the stationery show in 2012 with my own line. And that was kind of, as they say, history. That is such a great story on so many levels. First, I have to tell you that I used to show at Javits all the time at the stationery show. In fact, I think it's just been recently as circulation and people walking the floor seems to have started going down that I stopped doing that show because I'm out at a lot of shows still, but that's not one of them anymore. So we were probably there at the same time. Probably. Sadly, the stationary show as it was doesn't even exist anymore. 
it just kept getting smaller and smaller. And so they ultimately, beginning actually back in January of 2019, it combined with New York Now, which is the gift show that happens twice a year. Right. So it's not the same by any means anymore, unfortunately. But there is something wonderful about stationers. They're just a big, happy family. And it's a very supportive industry. feel so lucky to be a part of it. I find your story really interesting, too, because the person who responded to you when you were sitting on the steps crying, saying you really already know, why is it that we don't recognize that in ourselves? You know, it takes somebody to tell us that. I've heard this in different variations over and over again. Why do you think that is? I think a lot of times as artists, there's just this innate central feeling that, I don't know, that we're just not capable We can see it in other people, but we can't turn it around and see it in ourselves for some reason. Yeah, exactly. I don't know what that is, but it does seem to be this like central artist connection that we just all question ourselves. I think of imposter syndrome. That's so common with so many artists. I know I struggle with that, but it's just feeling like you're out there faking it and really you're not. I mean, we're everybody's taking it one way or the other. Some of us just might do it better than others. I don't know. But it does seem to be a common thing. And I wish we all just believed in ourselves even a little bit. And I know I'm bad at it too. So, Well, I always say that just acknowledging and recognizing that everybody, even people, I mean, people can look at you, Meg, and say, look at all of the success she has and what she's doing. And she still has imposter syndrome. How can that be? So just acknowledging (laughs) that that happens, the bigger, the more known, the more successful you get, doesn't mean that that imposter syndrome goes away. Not at all. It might diminish, but it rears its little ugly head from time to time. It definitely does. I mean, I think about Kate Spade and her incredible story and just how heartbreaking it is that someone in our eyes who was so wonderfully successful still struggled internally so much. So, I mean, we're definitely not alone by any means. Hopefully all are surrounded by these wonderful communities and you are, even if you haven't found it yet, they're there and just knowing to take advantage of that. Absolutely. I didn't mean to get to a topic like this that's so heavy so (laughs) fast, but just to share with our listeners, what do you do when those thoughts come up? How do you handle them? I try to just kind of approach it very logically and take a deep breath, first of all, and just kind of talk my way through it. If I can talk it through with somebody else, that certainly helps because then I can kind of get out of my own head. But if it's just me and I'm really struggling with something, like literally just taking the time to stop and think about, okay, look around you, look at what you've built. Because I have such a tendency myself to ignore all of that and just forget how we got here. And there's so much amazingness in and of itself in that part of the story. So just taking a deep breath, stopping, and I guess taking stock of how we got to where we are. I mean, it it wasn't luck or magic or anything. Like there was a lot of hard work and doing something right. You know, this idea also just occurs to me because I didn't read in the intro your whole bio because it's really long. (laughs) But (laughs) you have a lot of features in well-known publications, Country Living, Rachel Ray, Southern Weddings, etc. Do you put like a board or anything somewhere where you could look at that sometimes and say, okay, this is good? I don't. I should. I have a stack of most of the magazines that we've been featured in on my counter. And I mean, it's, it's gotten pretty deep. I'm, we've been very fortunate to be featured quite a bit. 
So that could be something someone could do. Like when you get accolades, and it doesn't have to be some of these big names, it could be just a local magazine that's highlighting you. How awesome is that? That helps bring you back and just remember that you've made progress and you've come along. Absolutely. So let's go back. We're still on the steps. (laughs) Okay, so now you're motivated. And okay, you've got this. What are the first steps that you did to get a line ready? Because you're saying the very next show you were there exhibiting. I was. So for me, I did things a little backwards, even though in my head, it was entirely logical. Most people, I think, probably start retail. So they open the little Etsy shop, or maybe they just have their own website. So it's direct to consumer. Whereas for me, I knew starting out, I was not going to have enough of a customer base to make it the business sustainable from day one. So in order to gain more momentum and really get the name of the brand out there, I knew we needed to go wholesale. So with wholesale, you're selling direct stores, but they are having to buy certain minimums. So your orders are going to be a lot bigger, at least hopefully. (laughs) And that answers the question of why you would go back and exhibit at Javits right away. Right. Mm -hmm. So literally, I had not sold a single card, not even to my mother, when I stepped foot in Javits the next year. Literally, that was my debut to the stationary world was at that show. Okay, so this is going to be really helpful to our audience, I know, because they're not necessarily cards, but whatever the product is that they have, what did you have ready? So you spent your whole year getting set then for the show, I'm guessing? For the most part. I mean, I probably could have been a little more productive at times. I feel like that last month before is when all the good stuff happened. But you had to design your car, like you had to create your line, right? Yes. And formally start the business and all of that stuff. Of course. Well, and I had to learn how to letterpress because quite frankly, I didn't know how to do that yet. So we ended up finding a little tabletop letterpress in an antique mall in Florida, which we were living in Georgia at the time. So we had to drive down and pick it up. But I mean, I didn't know anything about it other than the fact that I loved what it did. And I assumed I would love the process, which fortunately did turn out to be true. But yeah, so that year was spent like learning the craft of letterpress. Designing for letterpress is a little bit different than just designing for digital printing. So just kind of having to reteach myself in some ways. And then also deciding how the heck do you make a cohesive collection? Because I could have just designed whatever I wanted and put it out in the world, but that wouldn't have necessarily made any sense. So I knew I needed to present a line to these retailers that they could merchandise and have it all make sense together. Just that cohesive brand identity and vision across the board. So something as simple as picking a limited color palette, that way everything falls in the same range. And in the beginning with our cards, I had decided to stick with this idea of Southern phrases. And so that was another underlying thread to everything. And that stayed true to this day with all your products. It has. I'll like put a little asterisk on that. (laughs) So we are in the process of moving away from that. And we actually have been for several years for a lot of reasons. Moving away or integrating or diluting it a little bit and having other things as well. Both, I would say. Okay. I don't currently have plans to add any more of the Southern-based lines or phrases to the line. In fact, we just did this huge purge of the collection. So I think we had about 150 cards in what we call our general store line, which is the one with all the Southern-based phrases. And I think we got it down to about half. I think it's between 50 and 60 cards right now. 
And I think it's just going to be, that is that line for better or worse. Mm -hmm. So it's our favorites and top sellers, that kind of thing. But really we're kind of moving forward with the brand. And I think that's why I liked that quote so much right now. We cannot become what we want by remaining what we are. And I think in a lot of ways, hiding behind the Southernisms has held me back. So it's been really challenging in the best of ways to figure out, okay, what is it I really want to design when I'm not necessarily hiding behind something else? Interesting. Were you feeling like as you were bringing new products that there was more interest? Was it a numbers issue too? Like you're seeing that some of the other things that aren't as Southern phrased or all that were selling more? Yes and no. It just depends. Obviously, when you're selling to the entire country, you're going to see trends. You would think that the Southernisms would sell best in the South, but believe it or not, they did better in the Pacific Northwest, in California, and New England. No kidding. Yeah, it's the funniest thing. I don't know if they just think it's kitschy or what, but the South, like on the whole, has actually been kind of my worst in terms of sales, (laughs) which I still find hysterical. But I don't know. It's just, I started this business when I was 23 years old. And I've grown up a lot since then, and I need the line to grow up with me, I think. So it's a combination of product and then just also what you have interest in. Sure. Sounds like. Absolutely. And where you're gravitating to and all that. Okay, let's jump back one more time because I do have a question, one final one. I promise we're going to (laughs) move forward on this. No worries. (laughs) I really do. But we're still at that first show. Take us through how things went. At that time, the stationary show was maybe two and a half or three days long. How did it go? Any learning or advice? Because you were new and young then doing your first show. Granted, it was to a wholesale market versus consumer because we have a lot of people who listen who do the craft shows, Mm -hmm. you know, not necessarily the wholesale shows. But how did you do? What learnings did you have from those first few days at your very first show? Sure. So I very much was focused on getting to that show, showing my line, like everything I did in that year was about get to the stationary show, which while I was very focused, I think it was also kind of a mistake. Running a business is a marathon, not a sprint. And people that have listened to me talk before know I say that a lot. And it's true because you have to look beyond that one show. And unfortunately, I didn't do that. But we'll circle back to that. But keep that in mind. So at the show itself, I launched a line that had, I believe, 32 greeting cards because I wanted to have a good range for people to pick from, to be able to meet our minimum and not feel like they had to order everything, which I do think is key for new businesses that are considering wholesale is make sure you're offering your retailers a variety without forcing them down this path of literally they have to order every SKU from you to hit your minimums. But we had 32 cards, I think 12 gift wraps, six tea towels, four notepads. Like it was a pretty wide variety actually for just starting out. In fact, a woman walked by and said, there's no way this is your first year. Like, you know what you were doing. Like, no, I just came prepared. (laughs) I'm a big planner. So, well, that had to make you feel good. It did. Absolutely. I will have to give some credit to Katie Hunt of Trade Show Bootcamp, which is now called Proof to Product. Yep. Katie's been on the show. Yeah. I love Katie. So I took her series back when it was still a teleconference. (laughs) So I think I was in like the second alumni class or something. So way back when. But definitely her series was super helpful in terms of planning for wholesale. So everything from what is a line sheet versus a catalog and like, how do I price myself? All this stuff. How do I build a booth? 
so we actually decided, I'm a firm believer in presentation is everything. So I did not want anybody to know that it was my first year. Like they're not going to know I'm a one woman show and we're doing this in my garage and that kind of thing. So we invested in having a booth built for us for that first year, knowing that we could use it year to year after that. So while it was more money up front, it was going to save us in the long run, which I think was smart. In fact, I just sold that booth earlier this year. So it's lasted us seven years. So I've definitely saved a lot of money in the long run, but I don't know. I, we, presented ourselves best foot forward. And I went into that show wanting one order because I remember Katie had said in one of our calls, shows are about more than just orders. You're networking, you're planting seeds, like don't be discouraged if you only get one order. So that's all I wanted. I just wanted one. So what's your guess? Do you think she got that one order? We'll find out right after a word from our sponsor. This podcast is made possible thanks to the support of the Ribbon Print Company. Create custom ribbons right in your store or craft studio in seconds. Visit theribbonprintcompany.com for more information. We walked away with over 50 accounts. Wow. That first show. I was riding a high for sure. That must have blown your mind. It absolutely did. I mean, I literally launched a business in a matter of three and a half days. So that was a pretty incredible feeling. Well, congratulations back then. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. But circling back to what I mentioned before, that whole it's a marathon, not a sprint. Mm -hmm. So I had spent pretty much every dime that I had saved for my wedding invitation business to get to the show. Not considering that when I got home and I had all these orders to fill, how the heck was I going to pay for all that? Right. So I think we wrote around $15,000 worth of orders for that show, which keep in mind, those shows are really expensive. I mean, I probably broke even, all things considered, by the time you factor in transportation and food and lodging and the show itself. And the booth cost and all of that. Exactly. Right. That's a good thing to just pause here for a minute and have people understand is some of those bigger trade shows are expensive. So you really want to think and be prepared. This isn't like a last minute, like the craft shows are a little bit less expensive. Some of the concepts are the same though, Meg, in terms of what you're doing there. You want to sell product, but it's, I call it one big focus group. You're able to interact with people who may or may not buy your product, a lot of learning and all of that. But the big shows, yeah, 10 or 15,000, easy. Oh, very easy. I mean, that's even being conservative, it would be very difficult for you to get out of a show for less than 10000 just because your booth cost alone is probably at least $6,000. And lodging in New York City for a week is probably $2,000. Like it just, it adds up very quickly. Well, and Javits charges for anything. Like you're, oh not, God, <laughs> you're not even allowed to carry a box in practically. No. And they're going to charge you for drayage and all that. Yeah, you can't lift a hammer or you'll get in trouble. Right. It's a lot. Oh my gosh. Okay, so you've got $15,000 worth of orders. And now, so what did you do? I cried a lot because I realized... That's not going to help, Meg. No, I know. (laughs) (laughs) You got to know your numbers. That's really what the key takeaway of this is going to be. So I had $15,000 worth of orders and it was going to cost me $20,000 to create all of the inventory that I needed to fill those orders. Now, obviously that was more inventory than I needed, but... Because of things like minimum order quantities? Right, exactly. Got it. Not even taking into consideration all the money that I just spent to be at the show. It was gonna take all of this extra money to actually fill those orders. 
So that was a hard lesson learned. So was it a bank loan? Was <laughs> like It was a uh, mom didn't want to see me fail from day one loan. I was very lucky in that she basically guaranteed she was my loan in the sense that she knew I had that money coming in and that I could immediately turn around and pay it to her. Right. And so that's what I did. So pretty much our net ended up being zero mm-hmm. <laughs> after that first show, but it got us off the ground. But then you had inventory which to build. Exactly. Yes. Correct. Yeah. Well, thanks, mom. (laughs) Yes. No, mom is a lifesaver. Mom is actually still a part of the Bell and Union team. She's our operations manager. She keeps me in line, still checks the books on a weekly basis. So I'm very grateful to have her as part of the team. That's fabulous. Okay, so you filled the orders. How did you interact with the different shops in terms of understanding if the product was moving and then getting reorders and all that? How does that work? I will be the first to admit I was not very good at follow-up. And it's something that is being ever worked on to this day. We've made a lot of changes to fix that, but I had just hoped like I would send off these orders and they would sell out and then they would order again. And unfortunately, it doesn't really always work that way. Being a shop owner myself now, I understand how easily things get forgotten. So what happens? So yes, so share with us so that we understand better. Because I'm imagining as a shop owner, you've got people approaching you with product all the time. I mean, for us, it hasn't been that bad yet, because I think a lot of people understand that we're mostly carrying our own product store. Right. But it's also a little bit different. So with my line being 100% made in the U.S., I wanted the store to be the same way. And that immediately cuts the playing field down quite a bit. We get submissions occasionally, and we've got a file cabinet that maybe the timing's just not right at that particular moment, but we like their stuff and we'll hang on to it. I'm in a group with shopkeep ladies, and everybody kind of has a different approach on how they handle those sorts of things. Unfortunately, I know no answer has kind of become the new no, which I personally hate being on both sides of it. Like, I just don't think that's fair. I mean, if you're taking the time to reach out, Now, I say that with a caveat. If it's very clear, it's just some form email or whatever, like where you didn't actually do your research. Well, I can't promise I'm going to give you the time of day. But if I can tell that you really made an effort, but maybe it's just not the right fit or the timing's not right, I want to give you that feedback because I know back when I was starting out, I would have appreciated that. So I I try. (laughs) Well, and then they're not going to approach you again either if they understand that, right? Right. Yeah. So, I mean, it's twofold in that sense, but Mm -hmm. I don't know. It's, we haven't been discovered maybe yet (laughs) as a store. So we're not dealing with hundreds of submissions per week. Like some of my friends are, which sounds crazy, but yeah, follow-up was definitely not something I was very good at. We launched at that first show and then it became, okay, well now we need to launch a holiday collection. And so really, I would only reach out to my retailers, whether via snail mail or email, if I had a reason to, just to say, hey, this product is new, Christmas is coming up, do you need holiday cards? So, and I started working really on the next line to go back to the show the following year. Okay. And so a little different for you, for sure, especially now, because you've got your own shop, et cetera. But what would be a best practice? What would you advise people who are in that situation where they've already placed product and they have a list of retailers? How often and in what manner should they follow up with people? So we've actually implemented something that I think is really cool and I don't really see other people doing. When we send out an order, two to three weeks later, we send a handwritten note 
just to say thank you and to check in. Obviously, being a card company, like, it's kind of duh. Why wouldn't you send a card? But it's just that extra (laughs) point of building that relationship with that retailer. And we're starting to see that come back to us because you're just taking the time to remember them. It's not simply a sales transaction at that point. Because that's something that I've noticed as a retailer now. It's like I get my order and then I never hear from you again. I don't know. I kind of want you to check in with me. Mm -hmm. I may be the total opposite of most shop owners. I don't know. But as far as best practices, don't call. Nobody wants to talk on the phone, quite honestly, especially if you're pitching a line. But email is great just to drop me a quick note and say, hey, hope you're loving everything. Let me know if I can get you anything. Short, sweet, to the point. Just let me know that you actually care and are thinking about us and that I wasn't just dollars in your bank account. Right. It's a personal thing in a lot of ways. Our shop is pretty small. So for us to add you, like it's a big deal to me. And I hope that you feel that way too. Well, you're sharing your whole customer base, the whole audience with whoever it is who's providing that product. So it reflects on you as well as them. Sure. So you want to be selective for sure. I'm also thinking that trade shows are really good for this too, because let's say you're not exhibiting, but you're going and looking at product. You can also then go and meet with everybody whose product you're carrying to deepen the relationship. For sure. I mean, trade shows are a funny beast. They've gone through a lot of transition, I feel like, in the last few years. Even since I started, I've seen this huge shift. Less people are going to the shows, both on the vendor side and the retailer side, which makes it difficult because these shows are so expensive. If you're not writing the orders, that return on investment becomes questionable. I know for us personally, we exhibited in New York last February, so February of 2018. And at the time, it was the worst show we had ever had. I don't think we even broke even like it was pretty depressing. So we took the rest of the year off because we were focused on getting the shop opened. So I will admit wholesale kind of suffered for us last year, but it was just because we were otherwise focused. Right. And then we decided to change it up this year. And we did Atlanta for the very first time back in January of 2019. And everyone had told me, oh my gosh, Atlanta, you'll do double what you do in New York. Like it's going to be great. And since it's in the South, it's totally a perfect fit for you. It was by far the worst show I've ever had. (laughs) I had the same experience with Atlanta. (laughs) It was awful. Yeah. It was funny. We won an award for best visual display. And I kept joking that it was just my consolation prize because the show was just so horrible. And I hate that. I hate to say that. Well, and it's so big. It is. And we were in a great section. I wasn't going to do it unless I got the section that I wanted. And I have a friend who was in that same section who said it was one of the best shows that she'd ever done. Now, granted, I have no idea what that actually means. Her best show could be the equivalent of my worst show. I don't know. But it was enough that we are certainly questioning our presence at trade shows, which makes me sad. At trade shows overall or that show in particular? Trade shows overall, I don't see us going back to Atlanta. The one exception would be perhaps if we were in a rep group, but... I have not necessarily found a lot of success with those either. So there's definitely a lot of unknowns right now as far as how do we reach our customers. There's just this big flux happening with wholesale, I feel like. There's so much emphasis on direct-to-consumer right now. And I think wholesale is just kind of getting lost in that process. 
Well, and I definitely have seen the same thing with trade shows. I used to go to about 12 a year, then I dropped to six. And now I'm maybe at really four where we're exhibiting really big. And then I do really consolidated, very narrow industry shows that are Mm. more learning versus trade. So we do both, but it's not those big ones anymore. I'm seeing much more success in the smaller shows. Interesting. Yeah, just a whole different thing. 12 shows sounds really exhausting. Like I'm just tired thinking about it. (laughs) I would never do that again. Even if the shows were good, I would never do that again. Just because I don't know if you set up your own booth or you have someone set up. But like just the setup and tear down and Mm -hmm. all of that. It's a lot of work. We did three shows, I think two years in a row. And that was about enough to do me in. Yeah. So I cannot imagine 12. But they're fun. They are. It's wonderful interacting with people, seeing customers, meeting new people. Love all of that. But I could have someone do the front end and the back end of it and I could just do the booth. I'd be a happy camper. That would be the way to go, I think. Yeah. Okay. So we are so off track here. Let's move back. (laughs) (laughs) Let's go back to, I really want to talk about how you decided to add in a brick and mortar store into the mix. Was this always something you were thinking about or was there something that sparked the decision? It was definitely not an always. In fact, that boutique that I had worked at in college, so she closed before I ever even thought about exhibiting with my line. I think it was in the spring of 2010, but she had said to me, don't ever open a store. (laughs) So that was kind of always in the back of my mind. So I had met my husband in Savannah, Georgia, and that's where I started the company. He was in the military at the time, but when he got out, he decided to go back to school, which brought us to Texas. So we were in College Station for four years. And then he graduated, got his dream job eating ice cream for a living. Yes, it's a real job. Oh, my God. (laughs) I know. Are you serious? Like he's a flavor, ice cream flavor tester or something? So he is a food scientist in product development. His first, I guess, team that he worked on was the Frozen team. So he worked on ice cream a lot. He's in deli and bakery now, so it's not as fun. Like, I think his project at the moment is salads, which is just not nearly as exciting. (laughs) (laughs) Better for the waistline, but I agree. I would go for ice cream (laughs) by choice. He got his dream job, which is in San Antonio. And I'm fortunate in that with what I do, as long as I have access to FedEx and the post office, generally speaking, I can work from anywhere. But I decided that with this move, if I was going to try my hand at retail, this was the time to do it. And the reason for that was it didn't make sense to me to go rent commercial space for our studio. Because up until that point, I had been in the garage, essentially. Now, it was a really nice garage, and we made it work, but I was busting at the seams. And quite frankly, I wanted to feel a little more legitimate as a business. Because mm-hmm. I think we were going on five or six years in at this point. So it just didn't make sense to me to rent commercial space because then you're shelling out money for rent every month and that's just taking away from any profits that you might have from your orders. So in my mind, I said, okay, let's have the cute little shop in the front and the studio can be in the back and the shop will make enough money to cover the rent so wholesale can continue operating at no additional overhead. This was my big plan. Sounds good. Yeah, it sounds great. It sounds really, really simple and straightforward. I wish it would have gone that way. Not so much, but it was a good effort, we'll say. So what happened? You know, life happens. So I was not familiar with San Antonio. 
I grew up mostly in the Houston area of Texas. So it was this whole new city to me. I don't know a soul in it. So I'm researching all over town. Where do we need to be with our store? Because there's not really what I would call it a centralized kind of shopping area in San Antonio. Like there's little pockets here and Mm -hmm. there and they all have different vibes and that sort of thing. So I researched everybody and got a feel for what the rent was in each area. The space that I settled on is a little bit north of downtown and it is definitely an established retail development. But it's not one that I would say is small business friendly. I mean, you're talking these are major chains. Like at the time that I opened, there was a Starbucks on the corner, a Trader Joe's, Kendra Scott is next door to me. So, I mean, you're talking major brands. But now I think that would be great for you because of the traffic that comes into those stores. Exactly. That was my thought process. I said, you know what? Nobody knows my brand from a hole in the wall. Seeing Bell and Union on the side of the building means absolutely nothing. So I cannot have any sort of a location that is going to be considered destination because nobody knows me. So Mm -hmm. I need to be found. I need to be discovered. So we signed the lease, which was higher than we probably would have liked. But it doesn't matter how little your rent payment is every month if you're not getting foot traffic. Because if you're not getting foot traffic, you can't pay the bills, period. And so, you know, I've got friends with shops all over the country and they had said it's going to be worth the higher rent if it means you're getting that foot traffic. So we bet it all in a lot of ways. And we had done all the math. I had every kind of spreadsheet you could imagine. We opened the doors in July of 2018 and within two months of opening, four businesses around me closed. No. Yeah. (laughs) So that was a pretty big hit. One of the businesses was Starbucks, and that was just depressing on a personal level. Well, that's shocking. Well, yeah, (laughs) from one (laughs) Starbucks lover to another. I mean, kind of broke me of my habit a little bit, I guess we could say, but... (laughs) Oh, gosh. Yeah, it's really hard when someone that's kind of already fighting with this idea of imposter syndrome, here I am, this small business trying to play with the big boys, and Starbucks can't even pull through. Like, that was a big hit mentally, for sure. So it's, we've definitely had a lot of learns in the last year. But what would you have done differently? What were your other options? Looking at different places, it would kind of be luck of the draw depending on anywhere you went because you would never have expected that to happen. Exactly. I mean, I couldn't have planned for that. I mean, short of taking a lawn chair and sitting in one location for a week to see what foot traffic was like, which I mean, is really, if you were considering opening a store, not a half bad idea, I would slightly recommend it actually. But you had that foot traffic at first when you went in, you had that foot traffic because it was full. Yeah. I mean, I felt good about it. I mean, I don't, given the information I had, I think I made the best choice that I possibly could have. Okay. So now you have this challenge. Your foot traffic has dramatically dropped. Yes. And we're talking within just this year, because now you're just, you're in your anniversary right now, one year anniversary. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So what types of things did you do to try and overcome the foot traffic problem? Sure. So one of the big things that we did pretty early on was added workshops. No one in San Antonio was really doing anything like that, at least not consistently. And so we knew that that was a way to kind of differentiate ourselves and get people through the door. Because that's the thing that we've learned. If we can get them through the door, generally speaking, they're going to buy something, which is great. Our conversion numbers, like the individual sales data that we have is wonderful. And that's what I keep telling my banker. 
but just not enough of it. Just need more feet through the door. So doing workshops early on, we don't necessarily make a lot of money off of workshops because you're having to pay the instructor and buy snacks and all that kind of stuff. But it's more an investment and again, getting new people through the door and getting the word out there that we're here. That's been a really big part of it. Yeah. So did you find people that were going to the workshops then shopping and buying something in the store also? Yeah. Mm -hmm. So what we do is we offer 10% off your purchases the day of your workshop. So generally speaking, people will come in, take their class and then shop afterward. It's kind of funny the patterns we've seen certain classes. I swear nobody shops and then other classes, everybody shops. It's hit or miss sometimes. And you don't know that until that day. But I love that you're doing the 10% the day of the workshop because it's not like they'll think, oh, I need to go now, but I'll come back because you know, a large percentage of them will forget, lose the coupon or however it is. But if they're right there, there's a sense of urgency. If I want to use this, I've got to use it now before they leave. Yeah, it is definitely an in the moment thing. And I mean, I think that's been a big part of what we have been good at so far. Mm -hmm. Wonderful. Yeah. What I really like about this is you just didn't curl up and say, okay, these big stores are gone hopeless case. It's not going to work for me. You just took control of the situation. You might have cried (laughs) again, maybe for a minute. And it's funny. I sound like I'm a crier, but I'm really not. It was one of those things that even if I had wanted to curl up into a ball and just say, okay, we're done. Quite frankly, it's too expensive to do that. (laughs) Right. Because you had signed a lease. Exactly. Yeah. So even if my shop wasn't here, guess what? I'm still stuck paying rent on the lease until that's up. So it's kind of like, all right, we're going to push through. We have to make this work. Like we have to, this is what we have. And if I give up, it's going to take the whole business down with it, not just the shop. Right. And so you got creative. We've certainly had to. Yeah. With your workshops, anything else that you would say, or if someone finds themselves in a similar situation, any advice? Patients, honestly, we're still having people to this day come in and say, oh my gosh, did you just open? It's like, well, no, we've been here almost a year. There's actually apartments that are above us and some of the residents will come down and be like, when did you open? So people just, I don't know if it's a technology thing that they're just, they're so focused on going from point A to point B that they're literally not looking up and looking around. As silly as that is, it's kind of true. And in fact, we have people say it all the time, like, oh, I just ran into Kendra and was going to go back to my car, but I caught you out of the corner of my eye. So we definitely hear that a lot, but we've definitely started dabbling with more paid advertising. It wasn't something that I wanted to do or hoped that I would need to do, but it's definitely helping simple things, just boosting a post for an event on Facebook or through Instagram, something like that, because it's pretty amazing what you can do with targeting these days in terms of advertising. So you can say specifically like only target women ages 25 to 45 in a five mile radius of the shop. Like you can get so specific. So you know that you're reaching only the people that are most likely going to come. And you're seeing the results when you do that? You're seeing an increase in traffic? Yeah, the slow growth thing. We definitely have people come in and say, oh, I saw you on Instagram or I saw you on Facebook. We've been doing a lot to try to stay in the forefront of people's minds via local media. So there's a couple of local shows that they'll bring us in and I'll do like a Father's Day gift guide or whatever it is. Staying again in the forefront of people's minds in whatever way that's possible, whether that's a local magazine or a local TV segment. We try to do at least one thing a month, stay consistent. 
And so do you have someone helping you with this? How is your back of the house starting to get structured in terms of people helping with marketing promotion or advertising campaigns, all of that? Sure. So I am definitely not a one-woman show anymore. I could only do so much. I have a girl who does just contract work for me. So she's based out of Dallas, which is about four hours away. And she handles anything that falls under the PR umbrella. So whether that's getting a podcast interview or local media segments, anything like that, she's the one that spends between five and 10 hours a month. So, you know, not a huge investment, but enough that it's getting our name out there on a consistent basis. So I have that. I have another woman who does a lot of the social media management and marketing because honestly, social media can get overwhelming very quickly. And I think as small businesses, there's a lot of pressure on ourselves to do that on our own. And quite frankly, I don't think it has to be that way. So Allie, her company is actually Verb House Creative, if anybody wants to check her out. She's really wonderful, but she does pretty much all of my photography, so I don't have to worry about that anymore. She does everything from helping me schedule posts to pushing ads out. Like She's basically my right-hand gal these days, it feels like, in a lot of ways. But just learning you don't have to do it all on your own is really important. So those are my two contracts, but then I've also got a full-time shop manager She came to me via Instagram, actually, of all places, heard we were opening up in San Antonio and just wanted to put a bug in my ear. But she came to me with tons of corporate retail experience. So she had been a manager at a restoration hardware and an anthropology, like all these incredible retail giants. And here she was wanting to work for my tiny little small business. But that has been a wonderful partnership. And I owe a lot of the success that we have had in the last year to her. And then in addition to that, we have a few part-timers who've helped carry the load, both in the retail and wholesale, actually. So they may have a shift where they're watching the shop, but say no one's in the store, they can be packaging cards for wholesale or something like that. So they're kind of doing double duty, which is really great. Right. But it sounds like each person, clearly with your PR person and your social media for management and marketing, those tasks are specifically under their jurisdiction, which Mm -hmm. is great because then you can do what you're supposed to do. And I think so many times as a business owner, we don't do that. We do try and keep everything ourselves because it's a cost savings, let's face it. And somehow we say like, we're not big enough or we shouldn't be doing it yet, where really I think we start to stunt our growth because we're doing a lot of things maybe a little bit well, instead of really having someone who knows what they're doing do it. You've got to treat your small business like a big business at the end of the day, whether that's just the systems that you use to stay organized or asking for help when you need it to get the right people. I mean, yes, it's going to cost you some in payroll, but if you're hiring the right person, they're going to bring back tenfold what you're spending on them. So that's definitely key. And the other thing is I heard at a conference one time, the speaker was talking about how as the boss, You need to make sure that you're chasing the $100 bills and not the single dollar bills. Your time is unbelievably valuable as the head creative or whatever it is you're choosing to do in your business. So you need to make sure that you're doing the things that only you can do. It's hard to do though. I mean, it's easy to get wrapped up in the little day-to-day things when really it's like, okay, if I take a step back and honestly, even just taking out a pad of paper and a pen and being like, all right, what do I, Meg, actually have to do? What can no one else do? And you might surprise yourself by what it is that you can and cannot let go of. 
Or you might need a little mind adjustment that says, do you really have to be the one who does this? <laughs> sure. I'm struggling with that right now with some of the podcast stuff because I'm still holding on to way more than I should. And I know it. I'm getting there. I'm almost at that line. Not quite, but I'm almost there. <laughs> That's half the battle for sure. For sure it is. Well, I just love everything that we've talked about. You have had such great insight for I know a lot of our listeners and we've gone into some topics that we haven't covered in depth here. So I really, really appreciate that. Share with us a little bit, you were mentioning in the beginning that things are changing, your product line's changing a little bit, et cetera. Can you give us a little peek into the future here? Sure. When I'm not hiding, I guess, behind someone else's words in a way, like via the Southern Isms, I find currently that I'm really being inspired by color and texture. And I want to kind of use those to really push the limits of what I can do with letterpress. We've kind of pulled our focus inward. For a while there, we were working on gift products that other people were making for us. But honestly, my job became so much supply chain management that it was a lot and you're actually making less money. So anytime you can do things yourself from a product perspective, obviously you have to balance it out with the labor and your time and that sort of thing. But anything I can do internally, printing myself is kind of the goal. So I'm just really playing with how do I think outside the box and do things that we haven't seen done before? Let's see, sneak peeks. I'm definitely playing with handmade paper, which is not really something I've seen a lot of yet in the stationery industry, probably because it's costly. Right. That will be your upscale line for sure. Yes. Oh, it's, it's definitely that. But then how can I make something maybe that's not handmade paper, but have that handmade feel? So whether that's using torn paper and layering it and then putting a quote on top of it, there's a lot of possibilities there. Honestly, it's so early. It's been brewing, I think, really since the store opened because the store to me is where I want to go with the line. So now it's just trying to figure out, okay, how do I get the line to catch up to where the store is? So I've kind of been playing with this idea of sophisticated whimsy being really what kind of defines the line as a whole. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Love it. Yeah. All right. Well, now I'm going to have you take it up even a further notch. And this is kind of a virtual thank you on behalf of myself and our listeners. I want to offer you a virtual gift. So this is a magical box containing unlimited possibilities for these sneak peeks that you said. So even more than that, your future. So this is your dream or your goal of almost unreachable heights that you'd wish to obtain. Please accept this gift and open it in our presence. What's inside your box for the future? I'm so cheesy. And like literally the first thing that comes to my mind is like, oh, my debt it's paid off. Woohoo! <laughs> hey, there's nothing wrong with that. <laughs> that feels unobtainable at the moment for sure. I'm honestly daydreaming these days about beyond my lease, what that looks like. And I would love to be able to own my own space. So I get to be the landlord. And I want to bring in others in the community with their amazing gifts and almost have this artist collective. We've started working with a local potter to teach our workshops, and I want her to be able to have a space to have her wheel and just make, and who knows? I just All these amazing, talented people are in the San Antonio community, and I don't feel like there is this space for everybody to come together and share their gifts and be able to work outside of their garages. Oh my gosh, I could so <laughs> totally see that. I really could. Yeah, that's really what I want to work toward. And there's a lot of 
obstacles in the way, mostly involving money. We're like putting this out there in the environment so that it comes back to you. Yeah, really just being able to own my own space and have this kind of artist collective and be able to really focus on the making again myself, because I think a lot of small business owners know the whole reason you started this business becomes such a teeny tiny part of your day to day. I think you go away from it. And then as you're suggesting, then you come back to it as you've gotten bigger when we can spin off some of the business stuff to others. Absolutely. All right. If our listeners want to know more about you online, where's the single place you would direct them? Let's see. Probably my Instagram. That's We're updating that almost daily. You can find out the current news workshops we have in the shop or if there's a sale on the website or anything. Like I feel like everything's on Instagram and our handle is at Bell and Union Co. Okay, perfect. And gift biz listeners, you know, there'll be a show notes page with all the other links to Meg's website and everything else. So feel free to resource that when you want. And I definitely my favorite line so far as I was snooping around your website was the bread and butter cards. (laughs) I thought those were so fun. So I'm not telling you guys what that's about. You got to go check it out yourself (laughs) on the website. So Meg, thank you so much. This has been just an unbelievable pleasure talking with you, hearing about your experience. It's so fun that we were at the same stationary show way back when doing different things, but how you've evolved since then. So thank you so much for sharing everything that you have today. I really appreciate it. Yeah, thank you guys for listening. It's always an honor to share my story. Such a great journey Meg is on with her business. I wish I could have known her back in those early days of the stationary show, the years when she was just getting up and running. It would have been such a joy to watch her progression along these past years. But we can all now watch her grow into the future. And I know it's a bright one for sure. Next week, we have a guest whose story put me in one of those speechless moments. I have so much respect for the challenging path she's faced and worked through with courage and strength. She shares her struggles with us and has a ton of advice on protecting your business and your brand. Okay, so here's a little bit of a teaser. My guest next week has played a part in preserving Rosa Parks' legacy and has worked on the estate for Aretha Franklin. But that's all you're getting from me until next week. I'll see you all then. And until next Monday, make it a great one. Bye for now. After you listen to the show, if you like what you're hearing, make sure to jump over and subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts. That way you'll automatically get the newest episodes when they go live. And thank you to those of you who have already left a rating and review. By subscribing, rating, and reviewing, you help to increase the visibility of Gift Biz Unwrapped. It's a great way to pay it forward to help others with their entrepreneurial journey as well.